just alcohol. Have a lot of whack shit in them, so like I, I wouldn't be surprised by that. Yeah. I just had never really considered it. Yeah. Anyway, we really should cut most of this. Yes. <laughs> should we do the intro? Yeah. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Spin, the drunk special interest podcast, where we get drunk and talk for 20 minutes about nothing, and then we get into the topic of the episode. Yeah, (laughs) the topic of the episode is, uh, (laughs) I just have like four pages, no, more than four pages of notes here, but the topic of the episode is that we wanted to talk about, you wanted to talk about control, I also wanted to talk about control, because it just recently won several awards for being a real good video game game of the year (laughs) hell yeah um we want i wanted to talk about control because i am very interested in it as like the the product of the past work of a studio that i've been following for a while because i am very interested in the work of remedy entertainment um but also just because it's some cool shit. So. It's a really good video game. I wanted to talk about architecture. Yeah, that's it's related. Valid. It's relevant. <laughs> it, it extremely is actually. Like, see, this honestly, is, it this, is. This is when I'm glad to have architecture as like a side hyperfixation. I, I, I guess it's a special interest. It's it really just like is. Not you talk about architecture a lot and like interior design. <laughs> Those I would consider those special interests okay, of yours. Okay, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> it's like when I'm when I get super into something with like typewriters, mm-hmm. it becomes six hours of research. And architecture is just like, huh? I know this thing. Uh-huh. I want to know more about this thing, and then I'll research it for like an hour and think about it for the next three days. Uh huh. But it's not like pouring into it for. 10 hours at a time yeah there's a big difference in how i experience those yeah i mean i definitely have a difference between things that i consider like hyper fixations like i focus on it for several hours at once and then i don't think about it again for like another week or a month or however long versus a special interest which i might only spend like an hour or a half hour working on something related to it or reading about it or thinking about it Um, but I'll come back to it like a couple times a day or like, Mm. uh, you know, every other day or I come back to it more frequently and I think about it more frequently. Like not a single day goes by that I don't think about quantum break, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm pouring hours and hours of my time into it like per day. Yeah. I just routinely come back to it. That's why I consider that a special interest Mm -hmm. versus like antlers. I focused very intently on for about a week and I haven't thought about it since. <laughs> that is a hyperfixation for me. Yeah, that that's makes sense. that's how I define the difference between those two for me personally. Okay. Well, by that definition I uh I don't know how to define anything. So <laughs> fair. That's fine. That's valid. Anyway, I'm here to talk about architecture. Mm-hmm. I'm just somebody who will talk your ear off about a building. You really are. Can I can I yes, start with Yes, you can some... start. Yeah, I I actually took some notes on this. Mm -hmm. You're right that architecture is like a big aspect of control because what I wanted to talk about with control was like the places where I feel like it succeeded as a game that is fun to experience Mm -hmm. and like how that builds on like things that were good about previous Remedy games. And I feel like the, the main thing that stands out about control to me is like how it does horror successfully um 
by like utilizing the setting as a source of the horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I I actually went and I googled the definition of the word uncanny because that was the word that kept coming to mind when thinking about it. Like the type of horror that control has as being like weird and unsettling and uncanny is like the word that I kept coming back to. Um, The definition of it is strange or mysterious in an unsettling way, often describing something that seems supernatural or beyond what is normal or human. And I like summed that up with essentially like it's a type of horror when you're talking about uncanny horror is a type that's it's like not outright frightening it's not like in your face Mm -hmm. but like subtly uncomfortable it's something that should be okay but because of the specific way it's done it just isn't like that whole the uncanny valley phenomenon yes is mostly talked about with faces but anything can be made into uncanny yeah Anything can be, like, just slightly unsettling and uncomfortable. And a lot of times, like, the reasons that it's unsettling is something that you can't, like, quite put your finger on. And, like, I feel like that's something that Control does very successfully, both, Mm. like, with its setting and with, like, the way that you interact with the story, I Mm. guess. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, the the things that I keep thinking about are, like, the house moving behind you. So when you turn mm-hmm. around, a door is gone or, like, a, a hallway looks different. Mm-hmm. There's this whole, like, when you first enter the game, when you first enter the oldest house, um, you go down a hallway and you turn one way. And when you look back, mm-hmm. the hallway is just gone and you can't go back to the entrance. You just have to keep going. Right. <laughs> the whole game takes place in the oldest house. Yeah. We, we start the game with Jesse, the protagonist, entering the building from the New York City street, presumably, that we see for about three seconds. Yeah. And the rest of the building, we never see anything that isn't in the oldest house. Yeah. Should we? We should probably we spoiler should... warn. We are going to talk about Control a lot. We are going to talk about Control a lot. We're also going to talk about uh, Quantum Break and Alan Wake probably quite a bit. Yeah, I'm almost certainly going to talk a lot about Quantum Break. Not so much about Alan Wake because I am less invested in it personally, but... Well, yeah. There are definitely aspects of it that I feel like contribute to the two following games. If you haven't (laughs) played through the end of Control's storyline, we are probably going to discuss the details of the end of Control storyline, and you should go play Control. One thing we won't discuss is the Expeditions uh, DLC that just came out. Yeah, neither of us have played that yet. We downloaded it last night and just haven't played it yet. Yeah. (laughs) Charlie was playing Quantum Break all day to prepare for the episode. (laughs) I sure was. I, oh man, I spent, you know the scene where you walk through, um, Will's lab? Oh, the cycling days. Yeah. Yeah. This is... I kept thinking about how this compares to Control, but um, there's a part in Quantum Break in the second act where you um, go to uh, William's old lab uh, and time is just like totally fucked up there. You walk through a tunnel to get to the area of the lab 
and um, it like dis- time goes backwards around you and the tunnel that you're in just like vanishes because it wasn't there in the past and you just like keep walking forward and you can see the day-night cycle going by in seconds above you in this little alleyway and you like go in a, a little boarded up door you have to pull some boards off in order to climb through and as soon as you walk through the light that's coming in from behind you vanishes and you turn around to look behind you and the like door that was originally there before it got boarded up is there because time is just like going back and forth Mm. in the area Mm -hmm. and it's just i feel like quantum break is not horror it's sci-fi but this is a thing that we talked about in the previous episode. Where mm-hmm. I, I I feel bad that I didn't bring this up, but this is one of the places where like the intersection of sci-fi and horror is very interesting to me because it's in Quantum Break. It's not necessarily framed as horror, but it is framed as unsettling, mm-hmm. and I do think that you could lean more into that and it could very easily become horror. There's a lot of things about Quantum Break that I feel that way about. And I think that that's probably not an accident because almost everything else Remedy has done has been either like explicitly horror or like intentionally kind of freaky. Mm -hmm. And they didn't go as far with it in Quantum Break as they could have, but it's still very, very like subtly there, like in the DNA of Quantum Break is the spooky shit. It's still there. It's uh, Quantum Break I would not describe as horror, but unsettling in a very ethereal way. Yeah. Because the whole idea of the design of the game, visually and audibly and the level design, is to unstick the player from the timeline of events in the game. Yeah. Because Jack... It's about time travel. Because Jack, the protagonist, uh, can walk through areas where time has frozen and stopped. Uh, So you get these really cool effects where things will just be floating around you and you're moving as normal or you can just rush past somebody and they are stuck in that same place. Or you get that cycling of day and night through uh, his older brother Will's lab as he watches years of Will's life go by in the development of this project. Yeah. It's a really cool effect, and Remedy is excellent at environmental storytelling. God, they really are, (laughs) honestly. But... What where I was getting with that was I feel like the like subtly unsettling is something that Remedy has always been mm-hmm. good at, but they didn't really lean into it as much as they could have until yes. Control. And I'm like, they did a really fucking good job with Control. I've, literally, I saw someone at Remedy comment, "You let us get really weird with this one," mm-hmm. and they did it's really weird they leaned into that uncanny so much i'm so glad it's so good it is (laughs) like did you want to oh sorry (laughs) i do i do want to talk about architecture but as background i want to talk about what the oldest house is yes that was what i was gonna ask yes so the oldest house is the building the structure in which control takes place it is the environment for the game it's a it's, big, nasty-looking, concrete, brutalist building mm-hmm. in the middle of downtown New York. And right. if you don't know what brutalism is... I, it, we will. We will. It's <laughs> fine. We will. 
when you see the shot of Jesse entering the building, that's one of very few shots of the oldest house that we ever see. I think other iterations might be the same shot, just laid out in different ways. Um, it's this big pan up of this huge, tall, concrete skyscraper, and it's just this repetition of concrete and concrete, and it's very heavy and very austere and very big. Um, mm-hmm. And when Jesse goes inside, that heaviness, that hugeness, that repetition is carried through in most of the spaces. Everywhere's ceiling is really tall, which, you know, is helpful as a third-person camera game mm-hmm. in that the camera never clips through the floor and you're not limited in your perspective. Yeah. But it also just matches. It feels to the scale of that setting shot, um, that establishing shot gives you that sort of feeling of bigness. Yeah. Um, can I just go off on architecture here? I mean, you can. I also wanted to yeah. like briefly explain what the oldest house yes. is and what the Federal Bureau, Bureau of Control yeah. is. Uh, talk of, well, I'll, can I, the oldest house. Um, it's the headquarters it's, for the FBC. Yes. Say what the FBC is. The Federal Bureau, Bureau of Control. Sorry, I've been drinking. I can't say words. <laughs> The Federal Bureau of Control. Um, So it's like a a government organization that investigates spooky, supernatural shit um, and tries to keep it out of the public eye Mm -hmm. so that people don't, you know, know that there's weird, spooky forces that dictate their world without them realizing it. I feel like the concept is quite similar to, like, it has... Big X-Files energy, and also extremely big Warehouse 13 energy. Like, my god, I want to write a fanfiction where Jesse Faden and Claudia Donovan from Warehouse 13 are BFFs. Like, holy shit, please. Mm -hmm. I need this so much. This was also something that I, I wanted to talk about a little bit within the context of the oldest house, the building, being... Mm -hmm. It's heavily implied, if not outright stated, that the building is alive and sentient. Yes. No, I think it's explicit. Yeah. That uh, that also gives me, like, the big Warehouse 13 energy, because, like, in that show, the warehouse is hinted to be sentient, and Mm -hmm. uh, in the later seasons, Claudia, because she is going to become the caretaker of the warehouse, is able to, like, interact with with the warehouse and like it will protect her if bad shit is going down in the building like and i just think that's a very neat concept and also (laughs) i feel like that is kind of something that like jesse sort of experiences like near near the end of the game not so much the building like intentionally trying to protect her but like she knows what it wants from her. The further yes. the further you get into the game, yes. the more Jesse realizes what the oldest house like wants from her. So the the plot of the game is Jesse Faden, the protagonist, walks into the FBC trying to find her missing brother, mm-hmm. um, who was kidnapped what eleven years ago. Yeah, when they it's, were kids. It's been a long time, um, but she's she walks into this building. Um, and she's trying to find her brother and she sees and when you get past the tutorial area of this game where you're like learning the control scheme mm-hmm. uh, to very the very beginning uh, you go into the director of the FBC's office and find him dead on the floor uh-huh. um, Jesse picks up the weapon and the weapon is an object of power. Uh, 
An object of power is one of those supernatural phenomenon that the FVC studies. Yeah, it's like a haunted object. It's yeah. a cursed object. It's like an artifact in Warehouse 13. It's, it's not haunted or cursed in that a person did it necessarily. It's just got... It, it, it's got an unexplained ability or power. The service weapon in particular is a self-regenerating weapon. Um, in Jesse's case, a gun that regenerates its own bullets and can turn into different kinds of gun. Yeah. Um, it also, it, it can only be used by the, the director of the FBC, mm-hmm. and it chooses who becomes the next director. So... Um, apparently I feel like it's, is it stated or is it just implied that people have tried to become the director and killed themselves with the gun trying to become the director because the gun chose not to choose them? That wouldn't be a surprise to me because, um, it's it's stated, it's stated in one of the documents with redacted text. So it's implied, Mm -hmm. um, that the service weapon has taken many different forms other than gun, um, including Mjolnir, uh, Thor's hammer. Oh, so I only, didn't read that one. Only the person who is worthy to wield Thor's hammer can pick up Thor's hammer. That's, that's where the same bit of mythology comes from. Okay. I think. So it's not that it'll kill someone who tries to become the director. They just can't pick it up. Oh, no, you can definitely read it that it would kill someone okay, who like, tries to become the director. Like, there's documents that imply that as well. Mm-hmm. And Nordic folklore is not something that is entirely accurately documented. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you choose to interpret it that uh, the service weapon does not allow people to become director who are not fit, then you could also read it that it stops people from continuing to be director who are not fit. And that's how you find Zachariah Trench at the beginning of the game. <laughs> yeah, he's dead as hell. He is dead. <laughs> um, so, Rip in peace. So Jesse picks up a gun, um, and you start the gameplay in earnest uh, with it being a third-person shooter game with lots of like supernatural horror elements. Um, and then Jesse's portraits are on the wall. Oh yeah, that's the uh, that's one of the other spooky things. Yeah, when you first go into the building, there's portraits of the old director um, Trench, like in every room ever. Mm-hmm. And after Jesse picks up the weapon, uh, there's portraits of her up, which very much don't look like how she looks at the start of the game. That's true. I mean, it's it's her face, but like yes. she's she's dressed like a, a business professional yes. and not like a, a punk bastard, which is how she looks yes. when she comes in. I love her. <laughs> she's um, great. She is bisexual and she is excellent. Yeah, she has big guy energy. <laughs> she has a, a a a blue leather jacket and she fucking cuffs her jeans and <laughs> wears her socks pulled up over them. I do have a question. Do any Remedy characters not cuff their jeans. Alan Wake doesn't cuff his Alan jeans. Doesn't. Alan doesn't. Alan is, is a heterosexual. A cishet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Alan Wake is the only heterosexual in Remedy games. He's the only one besides Liam Burke. Okay, but Jesse's portrait when when she becomes the director, all of the portraits change to her. But it's not a photo you've ever seen of her. It doesn't look like a photo she would have ever had taken. Yeah. Um. It's in this like high button suit and she's got her hair done up and she's looking very serious that's actually the outfit you get for winning the game oh i didn't realize that when jesse 
decides that she director. wants to be director. Yeah, well... That is her director outfit. That's pretty cool, actually. That's pretty cool. But it does lend yes. to the spooky, unsettling shit, is just going in, seeing all of the portraits of Trench, and coming out, and suddenly they are all you. Remedy consistently, so far... I haven't played Max Payne. I don't know if it's like this. Um, oh yeah, I don't know any shit about Max Payne. I don't Payne. know anything about Max Payne. But... In Alan Wake and Quantum Break and Shake and Bake and Qu- Control. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Sorry. The protagonist consistently has as little information as the player. When she goes into the oldest house, she doesn't know what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't know why her portrait's on the wall. She doesn't know why this gun feels alive in her hand. Or why the building is alive. She doesn't know the building's alive at first. When you you walk into a hallway and it disappears behind you, you have to make some assumptions, I'm sure. Yeah, my immediate assumption would not be the building is alive. My immediate assumption would be there's some technology bullshit going on because I just entered a government facility. We think very differently, because if a hallway disappeared behind me, my first assumption would be, I am in a haunted house and it wants to eat me. (laughs) Just insert clip of the house is alive and the house is hungry. They call it the oldest house. Um, Documentation says that that's the name it's always had. And the oldest house appeared independently on its own um, in the middle of New York City one day. So the FBC moved in. Mm -hmm. Uh, The oldest house is considered a place of power, which... It's like an object of power, but big. It's like an object of power, but a place. It's the only place of power that we find out about during the game, which makes me think that it is, in fact, just a big object of power. Yeah. Um, But the thing about the oldest house is that uh, people passing by on the street normally can't see it. It blends in with New York City, even though it's this big, austere building that you just can't miss. People don't see it. Um, It has some supernatural shit going on that's mm -hmm. like a cloaking device. Not necessarily visually, but mentally. People look at it and immediately forget about it. The house doesn't want you to come in. Yeah, it doesn't want you to know it's there. Yeah. And when you go in... The house also gives you the distinct feeling it doesn't want you to be there. Um, There's a great video on this on Polygon. Yes, Um, we mentioned that earlier. We did mention this earlier, but Simone on Polygon made a great video about brutalist architecture and brutalist history um, leading into control. And she interviewed some folks from Remedy about it, Mm -hmm. some of the environmental designers. Yeah. And that's a very cool video. It is. You should go watch it. Please do. It's so good. I do have more context that I would like to offer that I think it's pretty likely that they also were drawing from, consciously or not. Mm -hmm. Um, When when you're in the oldest house, it's this brutalist, like, low-texture environment. There's concrete, maybe some wood paneling in some of the areas. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some brass in a couple of places. There's some brass. It's real nice to look at. But all of it's very natural sort of reflective textures. You know, if you walk into a room in there, it's going to be echoey and -hmm. it's going to feel big and intimidating. Mm -hmm. Um, Like a lot of government offices do. Yes. (laughs) It feels very 1960s in that way. It's just 1960s office, very glassy. 
Yeah, the finish. the furniture and like the technology that's in there is like very old fashioned. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of that is there uh, you can't bring like fancy new technology into the oldest house for some supernatural reason because right. it'll explode your shit. So they have like typewriters and stuff. But also, I do think they are really leaning into the like old fashioned office building look yes. of it. Like that's... that that was an intentional design choice. Yes. Remedy made a lot of very intentional design choices. Some of them lend themselves really well to a video game for video game type reasons, and others are just really solid design choices to create the aesthetic they're going for. Yeah, a a lot of what I think they were going for there was like the energy of, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, a government building that is not a pleasant place to be in, despite the fact that like a lot of people come in and out it's not Mm -hmm. it has the slightly liminal space kind of energy where if you were there at night you would feel haunted (laughs) it's like that people go to the secure social security office all the time Uh it doesn't mean anybody wants to be there yes that's the energy there's there's you know cops at the door of the courthouse i would like to leave immediately yeah that is the energy they did get it across very well and i do think that was intentional i i i brought up the for video game reasons thing as well um, because I think it goes a long way in making the game feel timeless. There weren't any like significant technological developments they would have had to worry about while designing this game. Yeah. Control has been in development since at least 2016, yeah. since Quantum Break came out. I think probably they started concepting for it earlier than that, because yeah. there's a lot of stuff that... Uh, this is something I want to talk about later, but there's a lot of stuff in Control that I think was in its kind of early stages of uh, understanding the ideas and working through the concepts in Quantum Break. Like, there's stuff in Quantum Break that ended up in Control later on mm-hmm. in a more polished version of itself. Right. Well, when when you look at... Uh, Alan Wake was released in, what, 2012? 2013? So it's like three years. Mm-hmm. When you look at the difference between like cell phones from mm-hmm. 2013 to 2016, even mm-hmm. if they it had, definitely dates the games, yeah, it, it dates the games. It very visibly dates them, not not just by graphics or anything, but by the design of the objects in them. Yeah, we can tell what time period they're set in. I think that's part of why they gave Quantum Break such a specific date <laughs> to mm-hmm. be on. Yeah, because having it happen in 2016 meant that the technology would never surpass the time period they were trying to portray. Yes. But um, in Control, they made this building a place where technology from today cannot go because the oldest house rejects it. Yeah. And... That the oldest feeds... house is sentient, and it doesn't want you to be playing fucking uh, Candy Candy Crush on your Darn phone kids while you're in Tetris. there. <laughs> the oldest house doesn't like Fortnite. The oldest house is a boomer. <laughs> <laughs> but when when they decided to give it the '50s design, it feeds into the aesthetic they're going for really well, and it also means that they're not going to have a 2012 looking phone in 2019 and also when you look at old design you're looking at 
iterating on concepts that have been done countless times and you can see what you really think is the strongest of those concepts. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what I wanted to talk about in terms of like architectural design styles. Yeah. Control drew on brutalism first and foremost, Mm -hmm. but a lot of things fed into brutalism. You can't just pull on brutalism. There's some other movements in there that I think are going on. The first one that I want to talk about as background for it is Bauhaus or early modernism. How's that spelled? B-A-U-H-A-U-S. It's German. I thought so. Uh Yes. Um, It's it's named for the Bauhaus School of Design, Mm -hmm. um, which was the most influential uh, art and architecture school in Germany before World War II. And it was pulling together architecture from a movement of simplification. People were more and more trying to move away from the Victorian Edwardian style of design that was complex and detailed towards something simpler, more abstract, and easier to build. Mm -hmm. Um, New technologies were coming around, particularly poured concrete. Yes. That's Um, a big thing with the brutalism. Yes. Uh, So we're seeing a movement away from detailed, handcrafted structure towards mass production. Yeah. A thing that they mentioned in the Polygon video Mm -hmm. was, like, especially after a lot of stuff was destroyed in, I think it was either World War I or World Mm -hmm. World War II, um, a lot of buildings and a lot of housing needed to be built very quickly in order to, like, rebuild after stuff like that. And that was part of why brutalism kind of... Right. Expanded in that time period was yes. because the things that were easy to build quickly tended to end up looking like that anyway. Right. With the big blocky shapes and the, you know, flat mm-hmm. surfaces and all that. So we see a reduction in early modernism and in brutalism uh, in the number of materials used and the extravagance of materials. You don't see as much color or pattern. Mm-hmm. Things tend to be black or gray or natural wood tone. Mm-hmm. Um, or metal. Yeah. People were asking what a building needed to be in order to function because they had to be built stringently. Mm-hmm. And that was true uh, before and during World War One, as well as afterward because of the destruction. There was a lot of housing that needed to be built. There was a lot of uh, social buildings that needed to be constructed. And that's why a lot of government buildings look the way they do yeah is because they were constructed according to those principles of how much do we really need to build yeah and as you move into the 1930s that's when brutalism starts up Um, but i also wanted to mention a a response to that movement called mid-century modern that ran alongside brutalism for a long time Mm -hmm. Um, mid-century modern uh started in the 1920s thereabouts Uh, with Frank Lloyd Wright. Was it really that early? That's where I see its roots. Okay. I would... You talk about this all the fucking time, so I'm not, like, doubting you, but I genuinely didn't realize it started that early. I thought it was, like, a 50s thing. See, people call it mid-century modern because it was at its peak in the 50s. Okay. Um, With mid-century modern, I, I do think it started in the 20s as, like kind of the opposite of brutalism and the opposite of art deco. Okay. Um, Because art deco is just extravagance and corners and shapes and everything that was hard to build because it looked really cool. Yeah. Um, 
and Art brutalism. Art Deco is like the, what you think of when you think of like a, a stereotypical like uh, what is it? The Great, the, Gatsby? Great Gatsby. Like in you the know, 20s, those big fancy buildings in New York, that's Art Deco. Black and gold, you've got all these squares and these like sharp cornered edges and this intricate golden design of geometric lines and curves. Mm-hmm. Um, but mid-century modernism uh, had its roots around then with architects who wanted to change and simplify the style. Mm-hmm. Um, they were seeing what was happening in brutalism and they wanted to do a similar simplification and abstraction. But at the same time, they didn't do the reduction in terms of materials mm-hmm. or cost necessarily. Yeah. Particularly as we move into post-war America, early 40s, uh, we're seeing the introduction of plastics as well. Ah, uh, yeah. So there's the simplification of form down to what does a chair need to be. Um, but there's also this different way of looking at it, not just what does a chair need to be because we need to make a cheap chair, mm-hmm. but what does a chair need to be because I want to make a weird chair. Yeah. So you're Is this the era that like those egg chairs came yeah. from? Yeah. I always wanted one of those as a kid. I just think they're really neat. See, you're introducing curves and curves are difficult to straight make. materials, very difficult to make. When you can do injection molded plastic and heat molded fiberglass, mm-hmm. curves are suddenly very easy to make. So oh, they're everywhere. Yeah. And with plastic, you can dye it. So colors are everywhere. Okay. You're getting these introductions of colors and patterns into what would otherwise be a very minimal and simplified aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get med- mid-century modernism is bringing that element of brightness back into it. Okay. When you look at brutalism, brutalism was, uh, and arguably is, still common architecture from the 20s way out into the 70s. -hmm. Um, Lots of brutalist buildings, government buildings especially, were still being built to that ideal Mm -hmm. in the 70s. But they started to lose popularity because people started seeing them as more austere and not, like, comfortable. Yeah, it, it, they sort of changed from, like, this is another thing that was brought up in the Polygon video, but they changed from like that. Um, they needed to be built because, you know, people needed a, a building and it was the most mm-hmm. efficient way or, or the most effective way to do it. So it changed from being like this thing that was very like, what's, what's the word? Practical, but like mm. in a, in a mm-hmm. good way, like People didn't well, hate the style back then, but nowadays, if you like look at a brutalist building, you're like, ah, yes, this reminds me of government buildings. Yeah, I hate it. It's so hostile and yeah, you know, it it, it looks unfriendly. But the, people didn't yeah. necessarily see it as that previously. The association was formed over the decades. Yes. Yeah. Um, the the brutalist uh, movement especially, was a response to lack of materials. So it was very frugal, very efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was very much function over form. Yeah. You had a lot of sharp corners because sharp corners are the easiest thing to make out of metal and wood and concrete. You had a lot of straight lines. You had a lot of geometric shapes because they're simple mm-hmm. and they're easy to build and they're inexpensive. 
Um, so you end up with all of these, you end up with this very defined aesthetic that was devi- defined out of need. Yeah. Uh, and then as resources increased and that continued to be the style that buildings were built in, architects started doing it more intentionally. Yeah. But also, like, over time, because that that style was no longer, you know, yes. the thing that people needed to make in order mm-hmm. to do things efficiently, because there were other ways to do it, it became more associated with, like, yes. government buildings or public buildings or places that are kind of uncomfortable and hostile to be in. And that is what the association is with it nowadays, rather than, like, originally. Yes. Brutalist architecture was born out of need, and I think that's very interesting. But when you look at what happens to it over time, as it's less out of need and more out of continuing to abstract on this idea and iterate on it. Continuing the aesthetic. Yes. You get this iteration over and over again of more abstraction to the point where you have twisty forms made out of straight lines all together that are just making these intricate strange patterns that when you look at the oldest house yeah you get the sense of strange esoteric design because the building itself is shifting around you so you've got these weird blocks of building coming into the room you've got this shift out of the wall this chunk of room (laughs) that's just been taken from you because the house decided it wanted to be like that Yeah, Um, Uh, a lot of the um, advancing through the story of control is making it to areas of the building that have been corrupted by the the spooky supernatural thing that you're fighting over the course mm -hmm. of the game, Um, and the corrupted areas are um, they have like these weird shapes and chunks of concrete coming in from different directions that like break up the view and make the room asymmetrical and make it more difficult to navigate. And it's just like kind of weaving through this maze of just like shapes of concrete that have come out of various places. Mm-hmm. And once you get through the area and eliminate the, the, the bad supernatural force from that area, the house shifts back to what it normally looks like because mm-hmm. the evil has been cleansed. And it's, it's very interesting to watch because on one hand, the, the, um, like the the weird chunks of different shapes of the oldest house that sort of shift around when you're in the the bad area um they do kind of like break it up and make it more interesting to look at Mm -hmm. and i do feel like the big open spaces are not more hostile but somehow just as hostile as like the room feels when the enemy is still there you know because yeah, the, I, the big flat open expanses are more exposed and somehow make you feel just as nervous as you feel like going into one of the areas where you know the hiss is. Right. Well, you're you're switching from the active threat of the enemy you know is there to the perceived threat of vulnerability. Yes. In a space. Yes. There's this. There's this area in control where there's this huge bank of stairs that you can run up to go through this atrium and hit all of the different levels. Which area is this in? Uh, the research sector. Oh, I don't think I've been there yet. I'm it's, not recalling which one it is, though. Is it the one that has a big map? Middle? 
That one. Okay, never mind. There's I was thinking of the one the with the map. No. It, it's it's several, several stories high to the point where you get the ability to fly later in the game. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way you can access some of the areas in this section of the game. Yeah. Is by flying to them because there's rooms that don't have any stairs to them and don't have doors. So that's, you know, that's, that's another how the building th- is. Yeah, that's another thing that I feel like is intentional on the part of mm-hmm. the oldest house. Like, it doesn't want anyone to get there except Jesse. Yeah, there's cookies up there. It knows. <laughs> the house knows. Not not literal cookies, but, like, you, you get resources for going into them. I just think of them as cookies. Yeah. <laughs> but, I don't know, that's that's another one of those things where, like, I, I'm just very fascinated by the idea of mm-hmm. the place as this sentient thing that right. knows things and has an intent. I feel like that kind of is where some of the horror comes from earlier mm-hmm. on in the game because as soon as you start getting a sense that the place that the oldest house is alive you start to realize that it wants something from you and early on in the game you don't know what it is that it wants and that i feel like is where a lot of the if not horror then just like the unease and the anxiety of playing the game comes from mm-hmm. is knowing that this this force that can't communicate with you in a way that you understand, wants something from you, and you don't know what it is. That's, it's, that's a pattern that recurs through several different areas of the game Uh from several different entities. Uh Uh-huh. You get it from Polaris, Uh the being in Jesse's head, you get it from the hiss, and you get it from the house, and you get it from the fucking janitor. (laughs) Do we need to talk about Ozzy? I love Ozzy. I'm pretty sure he's some kind of old god. I think Ati is part of the oldest house. I think they are different iterations, different sections of the same entity. Okay, that's an interesting theory. I think he's some kind of powerful being that can communicate with the oldest house in a way that normal people can't, and therefore he conveys it to, you know, anyone who interacts with him, but not everyone is able to interpret what the fuck he's talking about because he only speaks in old Finnish idioms. Ati is... Um, he's the janitor of the oldest house. He's an old Finnish man, and I love him. Ati is the janitor <laughs> of the oldest house. Like you said, he's he's got... Um, he's got his janitor's cart. He's got his radio that is always playing a Finnish polka. Like, it's not a polka. Tango. Yeah. It's a tango. It's not a polka. What am I thinking? <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, Did you know that Sam Lake wrote that? What? Yeah. Did he perform it? Uh, he performed the demo version of it. The The version that actually plays in the game is sung by the guy who plays Ati. Oh. Yeah. Well, yeah. Ati uh, is the janitor, but none of the employees of the FBC know how he was hired or how yeah. he gets into the rooms that they're in. Or how he navigates the oldest house. Yeah, he can get into all sorts of places that other people can't get to. Also, there's a couple of times in the game where Jessie's, like, internal monologue, like, a lot of the narration in the game is her talking to herself mm-hmm. inside her head. Um, Ati can hear that and responds to it, mm-hmm. which is terrifying, and I mm-hmm. love it. <laughs> I'm so intimidated by him. Jessie never comments on that outright. No. Personally, I wouldn't comment on it either. Mm-mm. If someone was reading no, my mind, I would just be... I would just shut the fuck up. You would comment on it in your internal monologue. Okay, that's true. 
Um, I think maybe she's just seen enough weird shit that she, like... Yeah, she's seen a lot of weird shit in 17 years. She just doesn't give a shit. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, she's... She's too powerful. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, okay, Ati. Yeah, what about him? So, none of the employees know when he was hired. None of them know how he has the security clearance to go to the places he goes. None of them know how he navigates from one area of the house to the other. Mm -hmm. And there is a point where Jesse has to follow his instructions to get to see him in order to progress in the game. You have to navigate through this labyrinth in the oldest house. It's not the ashtray maze yet. You have to, you end up taking a trolley car through the quarry. Yeah. Into this forest almost it's it's not an actual forest it is concrete pillars spaced so far apart that it doesn't feel like you could walk to the other like they are spaced they are spaced far but there's they're endless they're everywhere in this open field of concrete i don't remember watching you play this part and i haven't gotten there yet this sounds intriguing it's really cool do you want me to not tell you no go for it it's fine you're trying to find Ati because he's on vacation. This is important because the house is on lockdown and nobody's supposed to be able to leave. But Ati's on vacation at the beach. But you're finding him in the oldest house still. If you're kind, still looking for of. him, you're still in yes. the house, right? Yes, it's just, it's important to note because of what I'm about to say. Okay. So as you walk through this concrete forest, following his light, trying to find him so he can give you the keys to get through the ashtray maze. Mm-hmm. He the as you walk forward there is an overlay on the screen that's just subtly introducing this like visual of actual trees as you walk by and mm. the sound of ocean waves. And it gets stronger and stronger as you walk forward and then eventually you see this like cutscene of I think Ati on the screen, but not quite. Like, I don't think you see his face at any point. Mm-hmm. He tells you, you have what you need to do now. Go on, it'll be there. And don't bother me anymore, I'm on vacation. And then you leave, and you're back in that concrete forest, and you can't get back to the beach. <laughs> How the fuck? So here's my theory. Uh-huh. Either Ati is a supernatural being who is just hundreds of years old and has been in the oldest house for so long that he knows everything about this endless building. Mm -hmm. Or he is part of the oldest house, and that is how he is able to navigate, and he is part of the method of communication of the house itself. Or it is such a long-running interaction that there is no meaningful distinction between one and two. That's, I would lean more towards that one, honestly. Right. I do think it would be interesting if Ati was, like, the the conduit by which the oldest house communicates. But right. But he doesn't behave in that way. He doesn't intentionally give people information, or he's not helpful, well, per se. I mean, no. he is, but he's not trying to be. Here's the thing. I never said the house was trying to be helpful. Just because someone can speak to you doesn't mean they will. They won't necessarily want to. I 
I, I introduced option three because I don't... The way I think about Ati is it doesn't matter whether or not he is actually a projection of the phenomenon that is the oldest house or a person who's just been there for centuries, eons, however mm-hmm. long this thing has existed. Yeah. Because at some point, him being able to read and interpret the house, it doesn't matter whether he's part of the house or not. Yeah, that's fair. But it's... He is abstract and inscrutable in the same way as the, like, navigation in the building. Yeah, that's fair. I guess the reason that I am more compelled by Ati being a separate being than the house itself is because I think it's more interesting and more it it lends to the weird and the creepy factor if there is more than one weird inscrutable being that that is trying to tell you something but in a completely roundabout way like it adds to the horror if the house doesn't have that way to meet, communicate with you. If Ati isn't like the mouthpiece of the oldest house necessarily, then there there really isn't any way for it to communicate with you other than you learning how to understand it. And if Ati is a separate being, regardless of, you know, he's been there long enough that he can interpret and understand at the house, he still is another another, you know, being of power with his own motives and his own shit going on and like that adds to the kind of creepy factor even more because you don't really know what his motives are yeah either and that adds to the unsettlingness of it i feel like yeah that okay the thing that i've been thinking about with regards to what makes control as a game and what makes the setting and the the stuff that you do creepy and uncanny and unsettling is like the the things that you know and the things that you don't know and you know the the human fear of the unknown i suppose mm-hmm. um cuz like there's just so much stuff that never gets explained yeah there's the fucking all of the when you go to the containment sector in the game where all of the other uh like objects of power are stored where things are contained um you just walk by a bunch of items that are locked up in like prison cells and there is like throughout the game you can find little bits of text that tell you things and tell you backstory and like emails between other characters in the game and stuff like that but there's never any kind of explanation of what those objects that you see are or what they do you just walk by a prison cell with a fucking rubber duck in it and you don't know what it does well there is documentation on the rubber duck. there's documentation on the duck but there's like there's a, 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 a standing fan and there's, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff that you just don't know what the fuck it is and it's never explained well (laughs) there is documentation on many of those objects there's there's docs on several of them not all of them not is what i'm saying not all of them the fear of the unknown and the fact that the documentation is 
absolutely not anywhere near the object that ne- it needs to inform you about. Yeah, it's also a lot of the the text that you find in game is like heavily redacted and yes. blacked out. So even if you find information on one thing or another, it's not really going to tell you that much. Yes, you still come away from it wondering more than what you went into it. Yeah, you, you leave with more questions than you started with. <laughs> There's a side quest with the duck. I am terrified. <laughs> I don't even want to know. Okay. Well, that's, that's fair. That's that's the thing with control is that like the the fear of the unknown and the fact that there's mm-hmm. so much stuff that just never gets explained in a satisfactory way yeah. is part of what makes it creepy in the, the specific way that control is creepy. There was one more architecture thing that I wanted to touch on. Yes. And it is linked to the uncanniness. Yes. Hit me. Brutalist architecture never really went away, just like early modernist architecture never went away, and just like classical architecture never went away. Uh It's all reflected in what architects are doing now, Uh and the way that they think and perceive things is built upon this cultural foundation of architecture that is in their heads. So when you look at contemporary architecture, uh, there's still that abstraction. What is a building? What can we do with it? And we're seeing even more of that today. When it, when you look at brutalism, it's about what a building needs to be. And mm-hmm. so you see a lot of boxes. Mm-hmm. And you see that with skyscrapers. You see that uh, in Art Deco. You see the box over yeah. and over and over again. When you look at contemporary architecture, you see shapes that aren't boxes anymore. I don't know what building it was, but the the college that Mir went to Mm. uh, had a building on campus that had a roof that was like a big, like, concave arch. Mm. It was like this weird swooshy shape. Yeah. That's definitely... The building ain't a box. Right. They do some weird shit with them shapes. That sure is a curve. When when you look at the current movement, it's deconstruction. Mm-hmm. People are trying to change how the box interacts with the world and the interior of the building. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, buildings are getting bigger. We're getting stronger materials, we're getting better at building things, and we're building taller and wider and heavier buildings. So it was an idea put forward by Rem Koolhaas. He is a Dutch architect. Uh, he's designed a lot of these deconstruction type buildings. And I read his essay on bigness as a concept, the size of a building changing the fundamental nature of how that building interacts with the world. I'm putting forward the theory because of the way he talks about it, not necessarily because I agree. Okay. Uh, When a person steps into an elevator and is transported to another area of the building, they are getting more and more of that disconnection between parts to where if you're stepping into a liminal space that is an elevator, you are not feeling a jarring disconnect between the design of one level and the design of another Mm -hmm. because there's so much space in between and it's compartmentalized in your head. Yeah. So when a building gets large enough to need an elevator, traditional design concepts don't apply in the same way. Scale, in particular, when you view a building from the outside, Uh, and it's extremely tall, it doesn't have the same impact when you're inside and going up the elevator. There is that kind of distinction between the inside and the outside of a building, Mm -hmm. and that they can't be fundamentally connected the same way when your building is so large. 
I have a quote I would like to read about that. Uh Uh-huh. In bigness, the distance between core and envelope increases to the point where the facade can no longer reveal what happens inside. The humanist expectation of honesty is doomed. Interior and exterior architectures become separate projects, one dealing with the instability of programmatic and iconographic needs, the other, agent of disinformation, offering the city the apparent stability of an object. I don't know what that means. (laughs) He's... The thing that was getting me about this document was not as much about the actual ideas behind it, but the way he's putting them forward. That he refers to the outside as an agent of disinformation. That's very dramatic. Yeah. Do you see why I'm trying to connect this to the oldest house at all? I mean, the the, the quote that you quoted definitely has some big chaos energy, but I don't understand what the fuck it's supposed to mean. <laughs> okay. I wanted to talk about that because, like, when you see the establishing shot of the oldest house, you get an idea of scale. And that idea of scale is completely wrong. You... You get the impact of this tall skyscraper office building that you walk into at the start of the game, and the game takes place over so much more space than that building could physically hold. Well, yeah, that's because it's a fucking supernatural entity of a building, though, is the thing. Yes, but it's it's this idea of the bigness of a building overwhelming it. Yeah, I, I don't understand I, what that's supposed to mean. <laughs> it's the whole the whole essay's like that though. It's all worded like that with with that well, the, perspective the point... of losing power over a building and the building gaining control over the architect in a way. Like one line compares the architect to Dr. Frankenstein losing control of his creation. That's just very dramatic. No, the, the the reason that I'm having trouble connecting your thing to, to control is that that essay is like talking about how the outside of the building being too big makes it difficult to contemplate the inside of the building. Whereas with control, that is the complete opposite. Like coming into the building, you think, wow, that's a big building. But once you're inside it, you're like, God damn, the inside's even bigger than the outside is. It's the exact opposite. Well, no, the ideas, the ideas in the essay apply in reverse as well. If you're in too large of a room, it can't be a room anymore. At some point, it's just a space. It feels yeah. empty. It's not a room if it doesn't feel enclosed. That's how I feel about brutalist architecture in general, to be frank. <laughs> That's fair. It's it's usually got very, very wide spaces, very, very tall ceilings. Yeah, that's that's why the the rooms in the oldest house feel creepy and spooky in the way that they are. Yeah. They're, they're too fucking big. They're too big. Because of the bigness, you feel like you've lost control of the space in a way. You talked about vulnerability going into a large space. Okay. You feel a loss of control of the way you can interact with the space and the way other people or other perceived threats would 
interact in the space. Okay, I thought you were talking about this solely from the point of view of being the person building no. the thing. No, no, that it's <laughs> that's less relevant here because nobody built it. Okay. No. That makes much more sense, I'm sorry. It, it's written from an architect's perspective, but it's about the ways that the, the design impacts the architect and the viewer. Okay. So when a space is too big, it ceases being anything but a space. When a building is too big, it ceases being anything but a shape, in a way. It yeah. just becomes impact more than it becomes function. Hmm. The form takes over, and okay. it can't be entirely what it was supposed to do. Okay. Yeah, I... <laughs> I just, the, 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 I feel like what it's supposed to do, air quotes around that, in control is just the fact that it's so big is because it wants to be, it, it wants to be intimidating. The house wants to be scary. Like, that's what it is trying to do. Yeah, I mean. Like, it's not, it's not losing anything from being that large because the point of it is to be large. Yes, the house isn't losing anything, but it does have a profound impact on the players. Okay. I didn't I didn't con communicate the reason I was going into this very well. No. Not even a little bit. <laughs> but what was your thesis statement here? <laughs> the way my thesis statement was, I think Remedy read this document oh. when they were planning, and they were coming Remedy, at... Remedy clearly knows more about architecture than I do. My thesis statement was, because of the way this is written about the perceived loss of control and safety when it comes to spaces being large and buildings and structures being large, Yeah. I think they read that because of the ominous way it is written. Yeah. And I think they used that in their concept design. It has some deeply chaotic energy, just the entire wording of what you read to me. And I think when they came at it from the, from the perspective of designers, I think that would have a big impact. Yeah. IDK. I don't know architecture things. I just think the oldest house is really large because it wants to scare people away. I think so, too. Yes. <laughs> anyway, is that the, the sum of all of our, like, architecture thoughts on this? Yes. Should we move on to the next topic? That is the sum of my architecture thoughts. Yeah. Um, um, I do have one comment I'd like to close out the... Okay. Uh -huh. um, is it another quote from the deeply chaotic design document? It's a very brief quote. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the idea is that big buildings break fundamental rules of design and ideas about what buildings should be, and they no longer can fulfill their purpose in the same way or be part of the place where they are uh, because of the visual and spatial impact that they have. Um, so the quote is, Bigness exists. At most, it coexists. Its context is fuck context. Okay. Yeah, that's a pretty good quote. Yeah. Anyway. Hey, 
Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, coming in a bit late today since my brain was making fax machine sounds all week. This episode is going to have a part two where Charlie and I talk about Remedy's development as a game design studio and the way it shows in the games that they have made. Um, that episode will be coming out Friday, February 14th. Um, our theme music was composed by Alora Driver. You can find her other music at aqua-girl.bandcamp.com. If you want to join us on the podcast, email us at spinpodcast at gmail.com or reach out on Twitter at spin underscore podcast or on Tumblr at spinpodcast.tumblr.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.